ahead and jump in here. Thank you again for, for being here, uh, given these usually Thursday evenings uh, this summer to uh, studying God's Word and fellowship and uh, discussing these things around our tables. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up uh, to uh, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the church in Ephesus. Man, what, what an amazing and challenging passage. I, I really mean that. This, this, has been, this has been really uh, significant, I think, to study. I, I hope it is, is helpful for, for all of us as we think about it tonight and discuss it tonight. Scott, can you open us in prayer? And then uh, we'll, I'll talk a little bit about the city of Ephesus, and then we'll get into the text uh, in a little bit. Well, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, what a privilege, as always, to gather here uh, with your people and just to be able to share a meal together and to have... Uh, edifying conversations around the tables, and then just to get to open up your word. And uh, as Mark said, just an incredible passage uh, in Revelation uh, chapter 2. Just absolutely amazing that we get these letters to these churches, uh, that we can read uh, these letters that Jesus wrote to these actual churches, uh, and we can draw application uh, to our church today. And so I pray that we'd be convicted where we need to be convicted and uh, challenged and then strengthened and encouraged uh, where there is encouragement in this text. And Uh, I pray that we'd be changed by this passage of Scripture, and uh, I do pray that if anyone's love for the Lord has grown cool, I pray that you use tonight and use uh, this time together to strengthen and stir affections for you. I pray all of us would be strengthened, and uh, our love for the Lord would be uh, fanned into flame uh, tonight, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And just, I want to take a couple minutes here. Uh, Thank you to uh, Austin and Erica for some pictures I'm going to show you in just a second. Uh, and so you, we've seen this picture, and remember, Paul, uh, excuse me, John is writing from the island of Patmos, and it's a slightly different map here. You can see uh, Patmos is here, and John had spent much of his ministry life from what we can tell in church history here in Ephesus, and he had been exiled here for preaching the Word of God. And just going to take a minute here to watch. This is a, a, a video, no words or music here, but uh, this is sort of a satellite picture. You can get a picture of what Ephesus looks like today on Google Earth. So we will zoom in. Again, Austin and Erica were just here a couple of weeks ago. They used to have a port where the ships could come right up to uh, the city here. You can see some of the ancient ruins. It's a very well-preserved city. This is the marketplace, the Agora. Uh, the, the, the ships would come right up to here, trading ships, and they would go up this main road uh, to the Agora and the marketplace. And uh, this is where the Ephesian riot took place, where they want to kill Paul. Uh, great as Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours was inside that amphitheater right there. And uh, You'll notice here, if you turn about two miles uh, over to the side is where the temple to Artemis used to be. It was right, they're going to zoom in on it, right here is where the temple used to be. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Today, there's only one pillar left standing there. Uh, It doesn't look like uh, a wonder of the world anymore. But uh, this is the city where uh, this letter uh, to the Ephesians was written. And uh, Erica and Austin sent us a couple pictures, again, just from a couple weeks ago when they were there. This is from church history. People claim this is where John was buried I'm not going to stake my life on that. That's what they say, that John was buried in this particular part, that he was freed from his island of Patmos, and then he actually went back and died not long afterwards. Uh, one of the main roads in Ephesus. Now, what you're looking at here, this, this famous library down here, I believe it's the Library of Celsus, was built about 20 years after the book of Revelation was written. So this was not actually there at the time of Revelation, but about 20 years later, this amazing structure was built, which unbelievably is still, at least the front of it, is still standing. Here's the marketplace, the Agora. Uh, No doubt uh, Paul was involved in ministry in this very place. And uh, you'll see here part of the remains of a temple to um, the the emperor at the time. And you can see here, (laughs) this is a picture Austin took looking down. 
And you can see this, is, this one pillar is the only pillar still standing, and it was really kind of re-put up there, of the temple of, the, of Artemis, uh, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, do you remember a guy, Demetrius, the, the seller of little uh, shrines to Artemis in Acts 19? Uh, this may be the very place where those people worked based on archaeological finds. This is probably where the silversmiths were actually selling their goods. So Demetrius may have worked in this very spot here. Uh, the amphitheater, you can see, this is where for two straight hours they said, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Paul, remember, Paul wanted to go in there and preach the gospel. And they're like, Paul, I mean, we love you, but you're going, you, you will be immediately put to death. And Paul's like, I want to, it'd be a great way to go is probably what Paul was saying. But uh, they did not let him go in there, which was probably the wise thing to do. Everyone said, Paul, don't do it. And so Paul says, okay, fine, I'll, I'll live to die another day. And Paul does not go in, but there were some other friends of Paul who stood up to speak, and, and that's when the riot uh, broke out, and that's where that started. Here's an artist reconstruction of what this looked like from this same spot back around the time of Paul. This is probably a little bit after Paul, but around that same time. And another picture of what it used to look like uh, back in the day. Again, the port came up to here with the ships. Main road goes up here to amphitheater and Agora, and then you have all the, the remainder of the ruins that we, that we see today. I, I know you're there in, in Revelation, but turn with me for a moment to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And Paul was clearly involved either in planting the church in chapter 18 or something along those lines. There was not much in the way of Christians at the time of Paul, Paul's first arrival, but Paul was very instrumental in getting the church in Ephesus really going. And I find this to be an amazing text. Acts chapter 19, look with me down at verse 8. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. And it's been a while now since we went through this in, on a, in a church service. But when you do, do the math on how much time approximately Paul spent just preaching the gospel in the city of Ephesus, we have these two years. We're also told of another full year. So we got about a three-year period he's there in total this, on this visit on his third missionary journey. But when you do the math, it's about 3,000 hours of Bible teaching. I want you to think for a moment how much that actually is. Paul will say in chapter 20 of Acts to the Ephesian elders, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And that is no joke. He, he unpacked probably everything there is to unpack for those two plus years that he was speaking there. And we're told in verse 10, one more time, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Just stand up one more time. So if you look here at the screen, Paul makes his home base in Ephesus for about a three-year period in total. And while he is here preaching, he says in 1 Corinthians 16, a wide open door for ministry has opened for me in Ephesus, and I'm going to stay here, and there's much opposition. So Paul took this as God's providence directing this in a wide open door, and we're told that all Asia heard the word of the Lord. Well, this would be all of Western Asia Minor right here. So what a lot of scholars think, and I, I think this is probably correct, many of the churches of Revelation that we know Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, 
Laodicea, and also Colossae. Many of these churches were probably planted in connection to Paul's home base ministry in Ephesus during those years. And we'll talk about one of these stories later in the summer, but we, we believe, I believe the Colossian church, the Laodicean church, and the church at Hierapolis probably all started as, in connection to one man who came and heard Paul in Ephesus named Epaphras, who went back home and started those churches. So Although Paul is just right here, there is abundant fruit pouring out in this whole large area where church is being planted indirectly because of Paul's ministry there. And just any, any thoughts about the impact Paul's life had during those years in Ephesus? I can't get over 3,000 hours. I mean, that's just a lot of, lot, of, lot of preaching. So that when he says to, um, that he has covered all the ground, you, you believe it in that long. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, we talked about this when we went through Colossians, like the, the ripple effect that our lives have, can have on other people. Um, and we talked about Epaphras. Uh, I mean, Paul faithful, sharing the gospel there, but then you have these three churches where Paul never even went there, and Epaphras going out. I mean, I think of even our church, seven plus years, uh, we won't know until eternity, but all the things that God is doing through people who've been here, who've left, or even people who are here now. And uh, I think we mentioned my dad, the guy who, who led my dad to Christ, was a guy who was a simple janitor, like couldn't even find Romans. Uh, when he was flipping through, and yet the ripple effect is still going on today. Uh, this church wouldn't be here, I think we said. So I, I think we just want to be faithful and entrust our faithfulness to God and uh, in eternity find out more of like, how God will work through our faithfulness. Joe Whipple, right? Joe Whipple. So yeah. Joe Whipple. Probably haven't heard of Joe Whipple before. Joe Whipple, because of his faithfulness as a, as a janitor with the Navy, right? He's, he's evangelizing a guy in the Navy, my dad. Uh, we won't say how many years ago, dad, but it was a number of years ago that this was happening, and uh, more than half a century ago. And this guy is, is evangelizing my dad. And because my dad is converted, uh, he then marries a believing wife, and they have children, and Scott and I are led to the Lord, and all kinds of things happen. But how could he have ever guessed the domino effect of what would happen just from a janitor humbly sharing the gospel with a guy who's 18 or 19 years old in the Navy? But the, the, those are the kinds of ways our life impacts people, and your life impacts people in ways that you just don't realize. And the, the ripple effect, the domino effect of your life, listen, for good or for ill, is going to be great. So if, if, if I choose to live my life for sin, it is going to negatively impact everyone in my sphere of influence, and that's going to go on for decades and centuries through children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, people you influence who influence others, or vice versa, right, for, for good, for those who promote the love of the Lord and, and promote godliness. Look, look with us here at Acts 19, still verse 18. Let me see, verse 17. This is after the seven sons of Sceva, the Jewish itinerant exorcists, get sent out by the demon who did not know them. And verse 17, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers, these are new Christians in Ephesus, came confessing and divulging their practices, their sins, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. They burned their books of witchcraft, essentially, and those books were worth in modern language $6 million, $8 million. It's hard to exactly estimate. But to say something was worth 50,000 pieces of silver is an unimaginable amount of money. And they could have sold those books and made that money. But they knew that selling wicked books would help no one. So they burned these 
incantation books, these books of spirits and things like that. They burned them and sacrificed $6 million worth of, worth of, worth of their stuff. Why? Because this is their first love, right? This is Ephesus at the time of its first love. This is Ephesus deeply, passionately in love with the Lord, and they are willing to part with millions of dollars of sin if they can simply know Jesus in their own humble way. And so you see this just amazing time going on as Paul ministers, uh, Timothy will later minister here, Apollos ministered here, John ministers here. I mean, this has got the all-star team in Ephesus, and the people are passionate about repentance and passionate about the Lord. Reminds me of you when you buy books at Goodwill to get rid of the bad heresy. I was thinking the same. So no one else reads them. <laughs> They're just not Kinda worth 50,000 yeah. pieces of yeah, silver. Yeah, I like it. They're worth about $2, I think. <laughs> okay, let's turn to, uh, to our text, Revelation chapter 2. And Jerry, would you read the seven verses for us? Yeah, this is fascinating. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right, the word of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, and you have that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the words of the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Jerry, studying this this week, before we get into the specifics here, just studying it this week, yeah. what effect did this have on you? Yeah, well, I, we, Mark and I talked it about how this could apply maybe to our church as much as any of the seven. Now, as we go through the seven churches, I think each of them we're going to say, Oh yeah, I I'm convicted by that. That that could be uh, where where I'm erring in that same way. But um, I thought this is really possibly um, the best of the seven uh, of maybe the strengths of North Avenue and the weaknesses as well. And so um, I was really convicted. Um, both Spurgeon D. Young. Uh, their sermons on this were really convicting. And it was interesting here, and Spurgeon just, he just said, and I imagine each of us would say it, it is easy to lose our first love, to, um, where it wanes cold a little bit, where after we've known the Lord for a while, there can become a, uh, a little bit of a dead orthodoxy that, that doesn't um, promote the love for others like maybe we, we felt at the very beginning. So it was deeply convicting. Why, why do you think that is, that that is a common tendency that we need to fight against? I don't, I don't, because I, it, you know, we're being sanctified, um, and we're growing, and so, you know, I don't know that I, I have an answer. It's really sad to me that in my own life, um, I feel like that's happened at times, where I've lost both some of the fire and passion for my Lord, but then First John, which most of you guys are studying, 
the young guys were studying First John, the, uh, what do we call the experienced, the more experienced guys <laughs> are studying First John. And so when you love God, that means you love others. And so they go together, that first and second commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and others. And so um, I'm just convicted that uh, the busyness of life maybe, the um, good becomes the biggest enemy of best. We get busy doing good things, and, uh, but it's really not the best thing to, to know our Lord and, and make him known and share him with others. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I would just say at the outset, in terms of, uh, one, one person said this, but it just, I think when you study any passage in the Bible, you become appreciative of that passage. You're, you're thankful that that passage is in the Bible. And one, one person just said, you know, what if Jesus wrote a letter to North Avenue Church with strengths and weaknesses of our church? He said, wouldn't you be fascinated to read that letter? Like you would be, I mean, you would soak in every single word. You would think through it. You'd read it over and over again, and you would, you would be encouraged by the strengths, and then you would, you would pray, like, Lord, help me with the weaknesses. But the, one pastor just said, that's basically what we have here. Like Jesus actually writes these letters to these actual real churches. And we can draw, like Jerry said, this church may line up with us the most. But I just think, man, what, what a gift that we have this passage in the Bible uh, where Jesus himself is writing to these actual real churches with strengths and weaknesses. And we can learn, like people just talked about, you're going to a meeting to evaluate your church. Well, here's Jesus' evaluation. Like this is what you want to see. How does Jesus evaluate these churches? So I just think, man, we should be grateful that we have this in the Bible. It's, it's interesting to me that when Jesus begins to talk to this church, he could right out of the gate begin with the problem, and he doesn't. He gives encouragement, and the encouragement, like, you know, sometimes there can be, uh, what's the word, sort of like flattery, like a false encouragement where you're just making something up. It's not really real. We don't want to be flatterers. That's not good. Jesus is not flattering the church. He is sincerely encouraging them for real good that he sees in the church. Uh, so... We, we, I think an application here would be, if I'm giving a word where, if, if, if the moment comes where I, I need to give a word of correction, uh, usually it needs to be to myself, but once in a while to someone else, when I need to do that, I, I need to load in genuine encouragement. If I see real evidences of grace in someone's life, and I might see one issue that, that I think eventually at some point it becomes strong enough where it may be at some point it needs to be talked about, there needs to be loads of encouragement, loads of, of what you see positive about God's work in this person's life, if there is real positive to see there, that they need to incorporate that. It's kind of like, you know, if you have the pill you got to take, uh, you, you surround it in, in something you like that tastes good, right, with the kids. You got to take this little pill, you surround it in something that tastes good, and it helps it go down a little easier. But Jesus could have just started right out of the gate with rebuke, but instead he begins with encouragement. Thoughts on that? Yeah, and in all eight of the, or all seven of the churches, there's eight kind of a pattern of eight things. He starts with instruction, then his statement about Jesus, then the strengths like Mark's talking about, then the accusation, and then to repent. Then you do this. You repent uh, in a warning or an encouragement, and then, you know, how to overcome kind of the Nike there, and then to, uh, and then to listen. So two of the seven churches, there's nothing good mentioned that don't want to be part of that church. Two of them, there's nothing bad mentioned kind of interesting. And then there's three of them that are kind of a combo uh, where they are some good, like this one in Ephesus, where there's some things that they are really, really good. I love your point, Mark. We have to know that this is not an and or. It's not that they were sound in their doctrine and that made them not loving. That wasn't the way it was at all. They were sound in their doctrine and they were struggling in the way they were loving others possibly, but that wasn't because they were sound in their doctrine. This is, we want to be both of these things. 
And so um, when, when the Lord Jesus rebukes them for that, and we see the seriousness of it when we get to verse 4 and 5 here, um, it's pretty sobering. Yeah, I would just say, we, we, I mean, when we have to do the correction thing, we want to give the encouragement. Like Mark Dever just said, he will, if he has to give some correction, he will never do it unless he can give some genuine encouragement. He won't do it until he can do both. I just think we need to grow in giving encouragement. Like encouragement, like that's one thing I've learned from Jerry of the many things in the last seven plus years is how he genuinely encourages people. Like he encourages me, encourages so, and just listen to him, watch him, and then we can grow in the way that we encourage. I mean, it should just be natural and easy for us every Sunday almost to see somebody serving or Ian singing or whatever, whoever it is. Like Ian played drums last, last, last Sunday for the first time. Like, so it should be so easy just to go and just say, man, like, thank you for, for leading, thank you for singing. We should be, just be doing that so much that when we do have to give the, the correction, the encouragement is already natural and there. But it's, this was, I thought this was really helpful from uh, Joel Beakey, which is funny, Mark and I brought the same commentary, which was unplanned. But uh, this, is what, this is what Joel Beakey said. He said, sometimes we get the wrong idea about Christ. We think of our Lord walking among the lampstands of the churches as a kind of policeman whose flashing lights signal you to pull over to the side of the road. As the officer walks around your car, he is not impressed that you polished it that morning or have installed new headlights. He is looking for faults, for infractions of the law. That is his job. Our Lord is not like that policeman. He is a gardener who walks around the flower beds. He is planted to appreciate their rich color, texture, and growth. If you are a gardener, it is wonderful. Enjoy the fruits of your labors, but occasionally you spot something, mildew, insects, or shriveling leaves that indicates a problem that must be dealt with. That is how we should think of Christ amid his churches. He walks among them, not as a policeman or fault finder, but as a gardener rejoicing in the fruits of his labors. He comes as a savior who laid down his life for his bride. He walks among the churches to admire, appreciate, and enjoy what he has accomplished by the shedding of his blood and by his word and spirit. I just thought it was a very helpful illustration to think of Jesus, not as the policeman, but as the gardener who's coming to genuinely rejoice in the fruit of, like the good fruits of the, uh, of the church. But he's also going to point out there's issues, insects or, or whatever it may be. And once again, we see him walking amongst the church and, and you know that. The nearness they as the care, the love. He's never rebuking us as a church uh, to harm us in any way, to discipline us. If Papa was here, he'd be talking about the discipline of the Lord. The Lord disciplines those who he loves, and he loves us deeply. So that's a great point, Scott. That's good. So let's look at it here. Uh, Let's start in chapter 1, verse 20, just to remind ourselves about the uh, lampstands. So Revelation 1.20, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Just a word here, the the, the angel of the seven churches. I know this is a little strange. Each church has an angel, and that word angel could be messenger. Some people think it refers to maybe a lead pastor of the churches, but I will just say Not a big debate point here, but every other time the word angel is used in Revelation, and it's used a lot, it always refers to heavenly beings. I think it refers to heavenly beings here too. I think it's referring to some kind of angel that is connected to each individual church. Guardian angel, I don't know about that. I don't know what to call this, but you have some kind of angel connected to each church, and it's showing, I think, the connection between our churches on earth and representation in heaven. I know Jesus represents us in heaven, but it sounds as though there's an angel of each church and there's some connection point between heaven and earth. And I think the point here is to raise our sights to heaven. It's to say, listen, it's not just you down there. There's an angel up here. There's a people down there and there's a connection point between heaven and earth. And perhaps that's what John's getting at. I'm not sure exactly, but you have clearly Jesus walking among the lampstands, the churches. Now let's look at verse two. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, 
but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Some opening thoughts about the, the encouragement here to this church. Yeah, I love it. And, you know, the church in Ephesus would have loved for him to stop right there. There is a good <laughs> list of things that they are doing right. They are hard workers. They are enduring suffering. Um, they can't tolerate sin. Absolutely can't tolerate sin. Mark and I both laughed at the same point. I think the young made, there's really two things that, that Jesus really points out that they do well. They hate and they're intolerant. They hate sin, and they will not put up with those who are practicing it. And so, you know, this got a little bit different than our day-to-day. And so um, I love this list, and, and, it, and it's um, things that, that I hope as a uh, church at North Avenue that we grow in, you know, a love for doctrines, holding on to sound doctrine. And, um, and where there's something wrong being taught, where we can point that out. Yeah, I mean, again, I just think it's the, the encouragement that Jesus knows what's going on. We talked about this last time. It just, again, hit me afresh. This time, multiple people mentioned this. Uh, one guy just said, Christ knows what is going on today in your church from Sunday to Sunday. He knows what is going on in your heart, in your mind, and in your life. He loves each church and is concerned about her. Another pastor just said, none of us work as diligently as we should for Christ, but it encourages us to find that he pays attention to what we do on his behalf. And I just thought this was encouraging from another pastor. He, he said this, several sentences. He says, some of you quietly serve and rarely are given any kind of recognition for it. Some of you are content to pray and work away in the background and no one knows and no one sees what you do. There's no acknowledgement and you wouldn't have it any other way. But isn't it good to hear the one who walks among the lampstands say to you nonetheless, I know, I saw what you did, your unacknowledged visits, your unseen giving, the meal that you brought to the widow, the quiet word of encouragement to a struggling brother or sister, your faithful prayers over years and years and years for a desperate situation. There is not a drop of sweat spent in Christ's service that he does not see and prize and celebrate. I mean, it's just moving. Uh, I mean, just think, I just thought about it. Maybe this past month, somebody at our church probably woke up in the middle of the night and they prayed about some issue. Maybe somebody else at this church. No one else saw that. But Jesus' eyes are wide open. And he sees every single act of that and he's, he will reward it. Like in heaven, I just think it's just incredible that Jesus is here in our church and he sees literally every single act done. Uh, it should just give us motivation every week just to do it. No matter if people give us recognition or not, the Lord sees and knows and will mm. reward us. I think that's a hugely encouraging thing. We mentioned it last time, but again, to come back to it, I was encouraged afresh this week. So encouraging, Mark. You talk about the patient endurance mentioned twice, the enduring patiently and patiently enduring. What, um, that is just a, it's a big thing. And, uh, you know, we've seen that well in Scott. We've seen it well in a lot of uh, folks in our church. Tell us why that's so important, would you say? Yeah, I mean, going back to the riots in Ephesus and that amphitheater, can you tell what it would have been like to be a Christian in that city? I mean, there, there was thousands of people wanting to literally put Paul to death for his Christian faith, right? That, that was going on uh, just a few years earlier. So if you're a Christian in Ephesus, uh, you're going to be in economic hardship because very likely you're going to be taking a big hit economically and financially because you're not going to go all the way with giving honor to Caesar in certain ways, which would be part of an economic requirement in some parts of this, the, the way of doing things. You're going to be on the outside of the Roman pantheon and all the gods. The seventh wonder of the ancient world's in your hometown. Right? It's in your city of Ephesus. This, it's four times as big as the Parthenon. Remember the Parthenon in, uh, in, is it in Athens, right? The, four times the size of the Parthenon, this gigantic uh, temple to Artemis. You've got nothing to do with it. You, you, you are against it in, in your beliefs. So you're going to be socially ostracized. 
You're going to be financially and economically put in a hard way. Does it sound a little bit like where our culture could be heading in some ways today, right? So the more committed you are to Jesus and the more publicly you are about it, the less likely you're going to win an election if you're running for senator or whatever. The, the less likely you are to, you know, have some sort of prestigious position because people find out what you believe and they don't like it as a whole. So to stay patiently enduring in this city is not a small thing. It's not like, you know, there, was, there were times in certain cultures where to be a Christian gave you cultural capital. Uh, you know, we, it's been called positive world, right? Where a few decades ago, if you wanted to run for an office, I'm using just politics as an example. If you wanted to run for office and you did not attend church or you were an atheist, you were very unlikely to win an election, right? So there was a, they called that positive world. There was, so, there was social benefit to saying, I'm a Christian. You know, I work in real estate and I, I go to this church. Well, that makes your real estate business look more credible because you go to an upstanding church in town. You go to First Baptist, First Presbyterian, whatever it is in town. That's great. Well, okay, all of a sudden now you move into neutral world, which is, I would say, you could argue when exactly, but maybe about uh, 15, 20 years ago to 10 years ago, you had kind of neutral world where it's not overly positive or negative to be affiliated with Jesus, but you just kind of, it's just there. It's not really good or bad. It just exists. And now we've entered into what a guy named Aaron Wren has called negative world, which is at this point, the more you proclaim Christ publicly today, I mean, you're out. Like, leave. Like, you may not be able to work for our business if you can't affirm this particular set of beliefs that we have, uh, whatever it might be. All these beliefs are moving in, right, that we've talked about over the months with the woke issue and with the LGBT issue. Like, these issues are coming in. And to not fully affirm those things is to risk job security. So patient endurance is probably going to be tested more than ever for our generation here heading into the future, probably than it has been in quite a while in American history, maybe ever. And, and so in Ephesus, it was not that dissimilar to what we have going on today. And guess what? No matter how much they were tested, no matter how many difficulties they went through, what did they do? They continued patiently enduring and being faithful to the truth. Let me reread it one more time. Verse 2, I know your works your toil, so this is hard work in the gospel, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently. says it twice, like you mentioned. Enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. I'll just say this. As the culture is increasingly hostile, let's be honest, as family members are increasingly hostile to our own Christian faith, right? I mean, you know, Thanksgiving dinners get more and more uncomfortable as the years go on. So suddenly, even the fact that you privately hold the Christian convictions on certain things is going to make you an enemy amongst some family members. You don't want that. We don't desire that. But, but listen, it says, you're bearing up. You have not grown weary. There is going to be a tendency to grow weary, to say, is it really worth all the opposition and all the thoughts and words people have about me for what we believe? Can't we just bend? Can't we just cave in? Can't we just give in? If all we do is affirm a few things, they'll stop messing with us. It'll be fine. And so you see churches and well-known people bending and giving in to these very things today. And that is sad. Jesus says, no, don't grow weary. Continue growing, continue gaining strength from me, getting, renewing your strength in me so that I can give you never-ending resources as you continue to deal with uh, various uh, oppositions as you, as you move forward. Yeah, I mean, I just think in terms of they, they toiled, I think it's like work to weariness. Like that's what it mm -hmm. says. And again, there's going to be a big, huge flaw in this church, but we should be challenged here like the positive things they did. I think Spurgeon just said, 
can we honestly say that we've toiled, like for the Lord? Like in the last month, have we, have we worked hard for the Lord? I think the young compared it to like the, the World War II generation, the greatest generation in terms of spiritually, they, they, they were no nonsense. They rolled up their sleeves. They went after the spiritual disciplines every day, whether they felt like it or not. They, they were just faithful and steady believers. I just think we need to be challenged uh, on that point. Like, are we, I mean, I feel like so often in my own life, it's like I start something and stop, start, stop. Like I'm gonna memorize and stop. It's like, are we faithful and say, just go get after it, you know, every day. And I, I thought, Jerry, about the guy that you mentioned to Mark years ago, maybe a decade or more ago at your old church, maybe. And you, it was a guy, older guy. And you mm-hmm. point out to Mark, you said, what I love about him uh, is he's the same every day, like constant, faithful. And that's just reminding me of the, the, the Ephesian church. Just every day he's going to be reading his Bible. He's going to be praying, doing the spiritual mm-hmm. disciplines. And there's something hugely commendable about that. I thought about dad. I don't want to embarrass dad, but I thought about dad, like been a Christian over 50 years. I mean, he, like, I remember he was helping a church uh, find a, a pastor in the area, and he worked with Dana James. So Dana James was the former headmaster at Westminster. And, and Dana James said, uh, Bob McGander is the most disciplined man I've ever met. That's what, that's what he said. And, I, and I'm sure he, he's, he's, he's right in that. I mean, dad is just going to get up. He's going to read his Bible. He's going to sing his hymns. He's going to do the thing. And he's read the Bible cover to cover for over 50 years. I mean, there's something hugely commendable, and we should be challenged. And that's how the Ephesian church was, uh, whether we feel like it or not. And then, the, then, then, secondly, they listened attentively. Like they were discerning. They're not going to just take your word for it. They're like the Bereans. They're going to examine the, the word. Like it says they, they uh, in verse two, but have te- middle verse two, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I think here, we don't want to just be casual listeners of the word of God. We want to say, does the Bible say it? And I remember R.C. Sproul was speaking one time and he said the, the, the previous week, he mentioned something in the sermon. I think about one of the apostles. He said it was in the Bible, something about James or something. And he got confused. It wasn't. And one of the people in his church Look, tried to find the passage. And she came to him and said, Dr. Sproul, you said that this was in the Bible. I'm not seeing it anywhere. Can, can you show it to me? And Sproul said, I hate when this happens. Yeah. He said, I hate it. He said, but I love the fact there are people at my church who are listening and wanting to see is what Sproul said in the Bible. I, mean, I think you said one time, I think uh, Zechariah, uh, Mark preached about uh, John the Baptist before he was born with Zechariah when he said he was the high priest. And then dad came to you and said, I don't think he's the high priest. Uh, he's just not taking your word for it. We're going to go to the Bible. So I just think we, we can learn from them. We want to, we want to, especially I think with new people, you're listening to somebody for the first time. I'm listening to somebody teach the Bible for the first time. All my radar is up. Where is this guy at? Theologically, you, you want to be just, you just don't want to just take it. You want to say, is it, does it line up? And that's what they did. So I think we should be encouraged by that as well. Yep. Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season, we will reap um, if we do not give up. And that's what this church was doing well. They didn't give up consistently, constant, constantly consistent. With the, the, the parable of the soils, you all know that parable, but with the parable of the soils, how many soils are there? We got four, right? Now think about this. At the end of the parable, how many are producing fruit long-term, showing to be genuine believers out of those four groups? One, right? The good soil, 30, 60 to 100 fold. How many produce nothing and show no sign of anything? The past soil, right? That, that, there's nothing there. How many start off well and end poorly? Two of the four. Have you thought about that? The rocky and thorny soil both sprout up and look like they're going somewhere and they either get choked out by love of the world or they don't have roots and the, the persecution comes and they, they shrivel up. But three out of the four start off with a profession of faith. These are members of churches, as we would say it today. These are baptized members of church. These are people that they're all in. They got their Bibles. They got, they're in their Bible studies. They're going to church every Sunday. Out of the group of three, how many finish strongly? One out of the three right? Two of them shrivel up and die. One keeps going and perseveres to the end. It's not just persecution from the world that we got to worry about. My own sin is enough to drag me off the train tracks into the ditch any day of the week. To finish life faithfully is a miracle of God. 
for anybody to become a Christian at eight or 18 or 28 and to endure in genuine joy, peace, contentment, satisfaction, Bible reading, church attendance, and not get so caught up in their own sin that they don't fall off. I mean, how many of us know people who've just wrecked their life in the middle of it, just completely gone off and wrecked everything, just abandoned everything that they said they stood for for decades, and it's gone now? What, what happened there? Just persevering to the end is a miracle of God. And we've got to rely on each other, ultimately on God. We've got to go back day in and day out to the living water, to the well that does not run dry. Because mm -hmm. if, if you and I are not drinking deeply, regularly of satisfaction in Christ, it is only a matter of time before we're drinking deeply somewhere else. And what will start off as an internal shift of your affection will lead to a shift in the whole direction of your life. And what started off as a compromise internally will lead to a compromise externally, which will lead to long-term off the tracks, right? Long-term decisions that lead you far away. So for any of us to finish our course faithfully, it takes the divine work of God's Holy Spirit consistently day in, day out throughout our lives. That's, that's why Hebrews says, as long as it is called today, you know, don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage one another every day, lest your heart be led astray from, from the, the living and true God. So, I mean, Let's be honest here. I'm not thinking of any individual person, just even in a room, I know we're not a big church, but even in a room this big with this many people, my guess is virtually all of us profess faith in Christ. In 10 years, probably not all of us will profess faith in Christ. In 30 years, the likelihood that every single person in this room will be a consistent, vibrant Christian in 30 years, if God gives us life, it is not great that this many people would have. Listen, I pray that it's true that we all finish strong, but you've got to understand that warning is real. And it, it sits over every, you know, I work at a Christian school. I tell this to every graduating class. Virtually every student I have says they're a Christian. I mean, once in a while I get a student, you get a student who says I'm an atheist, but usually in, in our school, everybody says I'm a Christian. And that's why I tell my graduating seniors every year, I always tell them this is the scary day, okay? This is the day where I'm, I'm going to kind of get up in your business here for a little bit. And I'll say, listen, I've known some better than others. I've known every graduating class of our school since they started, back when you, when you were there, back in the olden days. So I, I've known every single graduating class at Westminster the whole way through. I've never seen a class, even in a small Christian school, I've never seen a class graduate and have a 100% spiritual success rate after graduation, five years out, 10 years out, 20 years out. Never seen a class do it. So I tell my seniors every year, don't be the one who falls away. Like the chances statistically are overwhelming that somebody out of these 30 kids is gonna fall away in the next five to 10 years. Don't let it be you. Like whatever you do, get involved in a church, get around Christian friends in college, get a Bible and read it and delight in it and love it and commune with God because college is, the temptations come a mile a minute in college. And if you are not having roots down deep in Jesus, you are gonna be swept away by the next pleasure or the next distraction or the next whatever that comes down the track. So I, I just think that the, the encouragement here that they're enduring well and not growing weary, that's a big deal. That's a big deal for them or for anybody. Mm -hmm. We can sure hold to Philippians 1, 6. He who began that good work in us will carry it on to completion. It is so thrilling to know that. I think that's well said, Mark. And we need to be thankful, really thankful, that our Lord disciplines us. Students, you need to be so thankful that you have parents that correct you, that discipline you, that love you in that sort of way, because that's God's primary means um, to your growth and to you, you're hanging in there for your faithful endurance, your patient endurance um, happens through the discipline that God gives us. 
Now let's get it. I really think this is the, the main issue here with their church. Uh, verse four. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Uh, that is a ma major warning. The removal of the lampstand, whatever exactly it means, it's Jesus basically saying, you will not be a church anymore in my eyes. So what, if it means removing his spirit, whatever exactly it means, Jesus is saying, I'm gonna turn the lights out in Ephesus. I'm turning, the lampstand's going out. You're no longer gonna be a church in my eyes if you guys continue down this road that you're on of lovelessness. Because where does lovelessness mean? Jesus says, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Scott, what are some things we're learning here about the idea of not abandoning our first love? I mean, I just, I just quoted some different people on this. Um, one guy just said, the Lord Jesus knows the very day and hour when your love began to fade. Um, he, he continued and he said, a potted plant may be beautiful when we first receive it, but if we put it on a table and forget to tend and water it, the leaves on that plant will fade from green to yellow, then die and drop off. Likewise, some Christians think their relationship with Christ doesn't need any maintenance. That is a dangerous mistake. Your love for Christ must be nurtured and protected. Without nurturing, your relationship with Christ will wither. And then he keeps going, he just said, we lose our first love gradually. The loss begins inside when our prayer life cools, when that happens, we lose our heart for God, our concern for souls and our love for the souls of others. Like a plague, this coolness then spreads to how we listen to sermons, how we read our Bibles, what other books we read. I mean, it's a slow, gradual thing. It doesn't happen overnight that somebody's gonna walk away, but it's a slow, gradual thing. And I just think, you and I've talked about this many times about we need to keep our spiritual temperature. Uh, we need to keep it regularly. How, what, are, what are my affections like for the Lord? Where, where are they? I mean, we don't wanna be too introspective, but I do think we regularly need to come back and say, and you talked about, when you complain, like you talked about the canaries and the, how do you, how do you explain that? The canaries? Canary in the coal mine. Canaries in the coal mine. They bring the canary down because if the air is toxic, the canary dies first. And then the coal miner goes, oh, canary just died. The air's bad. I'm getting out of here, right? So it's the first warning sign something's wrong. And I think irritability for me is the first sign that my heart is not softened by the Lord right now. It's growing hard. And that shows up in irritable comments, irritable statements, irritable way of acting. That's the, that's the first thing oftentimes that shows something's wrong. Yeah, so I, mean, I just think we need that in our life to, to see these signs that, oh man, I just lost my temper. That's a bad sign. Something's wrong. Like my, my love for the Lord has probably grown cold right now. And then that's what you need. To, you just need to get after it right then and there. Because if you don't get it there, it's, just, it's gonna keep going down. Like godliness drops, worldliness gains. It's like, you don't even, like your desire to be around the people of God, I mean, it just keeps going. I mean, it just can go worse and worse. So I think we need to, to realize what are, what are some things, these canaries that in my life, complaining or whatever it may be. And when I see that, I mean, I, re, I need to run to the Lord in, in that moment, but it's just trying to get it, get it started. Let me, I want to continue the same quote yeah. that you were just reading because yeah. I, I wanted to quote that same thing. L listen to this. I'm just going to keep going from where Scott left off with Joel Beakey. Listen to this. So these are signs that our love is growing cold. We no longer have the freedom to speak openly to believers about spiritual things because the shadow of a faded love has darkened our souls and undercut our boldness. I mean, you know when this is, I mean, you can tell, right, when this starts happening. This happens to me. We go through the motions of religion out of force of habit or a fear over what others may think if we don't, like go to church or whatever, Bible study. If we don't show up to Bible study three weeks in a row, they're gonna start asking questions. So I guess I'll go. I don't wanna go, I'm gonna go. That, that attitude, right? Uh, but corruption festers and multiplies within. We talk more about God than to God. Mm. That one got me this week. Man, I could talk about God all day long. How often am I talking to God about what's going on in my life? This hit me the other night, and this is just straight up confession time. 
uh, I looked back to last summer, and I was thinking about this summer. And I distinctly can tell a decrease in my prayer life between where I was at this time last year and where I am today. Because I remember praying for my children, especially for salvation and things like that. I was, I was doing better. There was more of a passion there last summer. I'm thinking, comparing right now with this summer, I'm like, man, the last couple of months has been bad in terms of zeal and passion for that. And so that, that, that convicted me just the other night. And let me, let me read a little bit more of this. We talk more about God than to God. We talk more about church than about Christ. I mean, my goodness, I can talk about church all day long. I do talk about church all day long. Just whoever I'm talking to, I start talking about church before about five seconds goes by. I, just, I love talking about church. How much am I talking about Christ? You know how different those two things are? How's church going? How, you know, how are people doing all this? I can talk about that. You know, the, we got the air conditioning is, is working, or we, whatever it may be going on. The, the, the plumbing got fixed or whatever. But how I mean, I'm talking about Christ, like worshiping Christ in my conversations, talking about how good he is in my conversations, it's more awkward. It becomes a little bit more, more difficult, whereas talking about the other things is easy. We still confess our sins and make solemn vows, but both are poses more than true piety. Such confessions don't result in repentance or forsaking of sin. As love fades, faith weakens, godliness declines, and worldliness gains ground. Worldly people start making more sense to us. Mm. How about that? People who love money and the things of this world and reputation and all that, suddenly the way they're talking starts sounding like that makes sense to me. Why? Because my heart has recalculated into a worldly way of working. My heart is suddenly agreeing with and corresponding to worldliness. Going, yeah, that sounds really exciting. That's what life's really about. Well, what about setting my mind on things above? What about having my affections fixed on heavenly realities? What about eternal realities? Now I'm thinking about temporary things. Think about all these other things that, that start clouding my judgment. I'm almost done with this quote. He says, we think more like they think, speak more like they speak, and act more like they act. We are more concerned about worldly possessions than we are about laying up treasures in heaven. Gradually, we become strangers to those who long for heaven and friends with those who are happy on earth. The devices of Satan are no longer so apparent to us, for when love fades, so does our vigilance and perception. As a result, we, we no longer miss God or desire to be in his presence, which is the great place of safety for the believer. Last sentence. A church leaves its first love bit by bit as individual members, such as you and I, neglect our relationship with the Lord and the things that keep our love for Him on fire. I mean, you think about, this may not be true of everybody in the same way, but I can think about early days after my conversion. I just, I leave my parents' house. I take a, what, a 45-minute walk and the whole time I'm just talking to God. Yeah, you know, it was the best thing. It's sunsetting. I'm by myself. Take a 45-minute walk the whole time. I'm just talking to God about my life. I'm pouring things out before the Lord. I'm asking God for things. It's just this zealous. I couldn't wait to get home from school and go upstairs and close my door and get coffee and start reading the book of Acts. I remember clearly, you know, this is a brand new Christian. I can't wait to go get in the Bible. Do you see how that can wane over time? And suddenly it's more duty than delight. Suddenly it's more of a challenge than a joy. And suddenly some of the life of it begins to be zapped out. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things he says is remember. I mean, so one of the things we need to do is remember. And uh, John Bunyan said, it is profitable for Christians to be often calling to mind the very beginnings of grace within their souls. I mean, I think that is a beautiful sentence. Often, I mean, just remembering your conversion, going back to, you may not know the day, but that general time mm -hmm. when God saved you. Uh, another guy, or Biki said, we need constant reminders of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. And another pastor said, ought to, we ought to remember what it was like when grace gripped you. I and mean, I just think regularly, I, mean, I talk about this all the time, but going back, remembering your conversion, thinking about what, what your life was like, 
before God saved you. I mean, you were blind. You had no love for the word of God. You did not care about spiritual things at all. And think about where your life was headed before God intervened. And then think back when God entered in, when all of a sudden the Bible became radiant with life, when the gospel was absolutely, utterly compelling that Jesus died for him. I mean, just uh, unbelievable. You can go, you can, I, can, I can picture it all. I and mean, I remember growing up, I love hearing my dad preach. And anybody else I didn't like, just because he's my dad. I love to hear my dad preach. So then I remember soon after my conversion, a guy, a guest speaker came in. I remember this. And he preached about the gospel. And I wept. I wept just because he preached the gospel. I was like, this is wonderful. The cup of wrath, right? He was talking I about think the so, cup. yeah, the cup of wrath. And I was just moved to tears the first time by another, another speaker because my eyes were open to the beauty of Jesus. So I think remembering your conversion when grace gripped you. But I think for me, one of the things that helps me is I go back to church history. I, I read conversions in church history. I read, like Spurgeon's, like you said, you, you go back once a month, like, I mean, I could, I could cry at all these different guys you just think about. Like John Bunyan, when he was converted, he wanted to like sing to the crows. Like, did he, did he, he'd be born again. Spurgeon, like, when he comes home to his house and like his whole family wants to rejoice. Like, the, the prodigal son has come home. I mean, I think about people in our church. I thought about Grant Crane. Like, he came to our church thinking he was a Christian and he's a nominal Christian. And he, he would sit there, he would get mad at me. <laughs> he would get mad at me for getting emotional about the gospel. Like, suck it up, man, get through it. That's what he was saying <laughs> to himself uh, when I was teaching. And then you think about, he comes under conviction and he's listening in the lab to a sermon and tears start flowing down. He's got to get his gloves off. He looks crazy, he runs into the bathroom and totally radically changed. I mean, you think of Hannah Hughes too, thought, thought she was a Christian, grew up in a wonderful home. And then she's converted here, a Jose. And you just go back and think, wow, uh, how God has moved and just, it begins to stir. I, I just think getting around other Christians say, like, let's just tell our conversion stories tonight. And you, you're gripped afresh uh, by the love of God for you and for others. But I, I just love church history, seeing people, even a guy like Howell Harris, uh, who, wretched man that I mentioned before. And when he was converted, he just said, he literally jumped up and down for joy. Like that his sins were forgiven. He leapt home. And uh, I just think stories like that, again, just begin to warm you up again. So we need to remember for sure. That's great, Scott. And it should remind us to, to talk often about that with people. Don't be ashamed to share what God's doing in your life or what he's done in your life. You know what was convicting to me was it was easy to hate the, uh, what the Nicolaitan Laytons are doing. You know, everybody else, boy, those guys are way off, and I cannot stand what they're going, and not to take a look at my own heart and uh, to instead just focus on everybody else's sin. And I think that is another sign that possibly we're abandoning our first love. When we first came to Christ, we were deeply convicted about our own sin. Am I worried about everybody else's sin? Which I need to be in a way, but I have to say, I'm the main issue here. I need Christ. I need him today. And I need to not just focus outwardly, but to um, be quick to confess my own sin. Yeah, I heard someone said, the Ephesians hated what they should hate, but they did not love what they should love. I think that's a great summary of this mm -hmm. church. They were right to hate the false teachers and the works of the Nicolaitans. That, that was compromised. It was evil. And they were right to hate it. Jesus says, I hate it too. <laughs> Join this club. I, they, that should be hated. That's wrong. But they hated what they should hate. They did not love what they should love. And, and we, we should hate false doctrine. We should love true doctrine. But it, I mean, I'm telling you, doctrine never, ever minimize doctrine. But when doctrine starts becoming its own end in itself, that's when you got trouble. When it becomes this sort of like math equation that you solve, like, man, I, I can figure out all these verses and how they fit together. Oh my goodness, I have this whole system of theology. It makes sense. It's consistent. It's, it's reliable. It's sound. It's good. It's historic. It's creedal. It's fantastic. 
Am I delighting in the ability to put this stuff together, or am I, de- am I looking through the doctrine to the person behind it, which is the triune God, and am I delighting in the God that the doctrine's about, right? The, the doctrine is like a lens through which we see God clearly, and we don't want a smudgy lens. We want a clear lens of doctrine. We want solid, sound teaching, but we want to look through the teaching, not at the teaching. We want to look through it to Jesus. He's the one behind it. He's the one we see through it, and it's him rightly described that is why doctrine's so precious. And uh, if we stop looking through and just looking at what we believe, that's when, we, that's when I think we start having a, 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 mm-hmm. this kind of problem. Someone said true orthodoxy is always warm, loving, and generous. Are we warm, loving, and generous in the way we go about treating each other? It's brought me back 30 years. Uh, Dr. Belcher, one of my favorite teachers, um, I had a, um, a roommate who was a completely, we were both way out of hand, and we were sitting in class, and neither of us had written something down in a couple weeks probably when we should have been taking notes. And so Dr. Belcher was on a tangent. And uh, he said, even if your theology's right, and he was a big, loud man, <laughs> even if your theology's right and you have a bad attitude, you're wrong. <laughs> and for the first time, Kim got out his pencil and he just wrote it down because this was a quote that I bet I heard a hundred times in the next two weeks, even if your theology is right. And I thought, boy, when I read this, that came back to my mind. If we have sound theology, that is great. And we have to. But if we have a bad attitude in the way we're um, presenting that, in the way we're loving others, we're wrong, and we need to confess that, and it might be because we've lost our first love. Okay. Just add one, one quick thing that uh, we're to remember we're to repent, but I think one of the things we'd say, if you feel low, your love for the Lord is, is cold, what do we do? And I'm just going to, I've quoted this in a book club before. This is a, a Welsh Baptist minister who had ministered in the 17 to 1800s, and he, he had pastored for 15 years, and then he was in a very, very bad spot. And this is what he said. He said, I was weary, weary of a cold heart towards Christ and his sacrifice and the work of the Holy Spirit a cold heart in the pulpit, in secret prayer and in the study. On a day ever to be remembered by me, he goes on this long walk. He said, I considered it incumbent upon me to pray. However hard I felt in my heart and however worldly the frame of my spirit was. So he begins to pray, repenting and everything. And he said, having begun, I soon felt as it were the fetters loosening and the old hardness of heart softening. And as I thought mountains of frost and snow dissolving and melting within me, I felt my whole mind relieved from some great bondage. Tears flowed copiously, and I was constrained to cry out for the gracious visits of God by restoring to my soul the joys of his salvation. So I just think if you're if we're feeling low, we go again to the Lord and just say, Lord, restore to me. Like we repent, forgive me for, for, for neglecting the word and forgiving, forgive me for whatever's wrong, but then please restore to me the joy of your salvation. And God is so gracious to, to, mm-hmm. to give you relief. I mean, I just remember when COVID first hit and we couldn't gather as a church, it just messed with me so bad. Like not being around the people of God, I just felt all out of sorts spiritually. And I remember going like the passage that you go to about uh, how much more will the, your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. I'm just pleading with God, like, please, Father, give, give me your Holy Spirit. And I think God is just so gracious. So if you're in that state, cry out to him to restore that joy, and he will. I know we're ready to close, but I want to finish the last verse. So verse seven, <clears throat> he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So here it is, the closing comment. If we are hearing this message with our physical ears, let us not close our, the, the ears of our heart to this message. Let us not close the internal ears of our heart. Let us open ourselves up and say, I want to receive this message. I want to believe it. I want to obey what is being said here. And if we do and we endure to the end, we are conquerors by God's grace, more than conquerors. 
and we will eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Again, we will have intimate communion with the living God for all of eternity in the new creation in the paradise of God. That's available for those who endure to the end and conquer, but not for those who draw back to destruction. Jerry, would you close us in prayer? Gracious, what a great, gracious Father, what a great challenge uh, we've had tonight. Um, Lord, we want to be a church that is sound in our doctrine, that we would hold to um, sound doctrine as you have taught us in the pastoral epistles and throughout your word. Um, Lord, we ask that we would keep our eyes um, on Jesus, that we would not abandon our first love. Lord, there is uh, a temptation to let uh, good become the biggest enemy of best and to um, do good things and to be um, have busy hands and have keen minds but have cold hearts. And I ask, Lord, that we would not grow weary in well-doing, um, that we would uh, patiently endure um, as the Ephesians were. Um, and, Lord, we pray that we'd be quick uh, to, to see the signs when um, we are growing um, cold or when we are not loving others well. And, Lord, we would um, race to you that uh, we would remember what Scott has uh, taught us tonight, that we would um, go back to the gospel, that we would um, go back to um, remembering what um, things were like at the beginning when we, we, when we first loved you and, um, and you changed our hearts. And so, Lord, we commit um, our church to you. We commit individually our lives to you and ask, Lord, that we would not drift as uh, you warned us in Hebrews um, away from um, your, your great love for us and our love for others in Jesus' name.